With your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, Herd Tell Show, Time Talk Economics. Again, when we do this, we have a little rotation of knowledgeable folks we turn to. This is one of them. I was going to tease it like he ain't, but he is. Jericho Hill, our friend, Ordinary Times contributor. He works at one of them ABC organizations for the government, but his opinions are his and his alone for the purposes of this talk. Uh, He also talks a little home uh, equity and home buying and affordable housing. We're going to get into that too. But first, my friend Jericho, we have yet another economics report and we have the schizophrenia again. We got great job numbers and bad inflation numbers. Please make sense of this for us. All right. So first thing, um, I know it's in the vogue because three-letter agencies are apparently bad things. I don't work for an ABC agency. I work for an ABCD agency. Um, so I'm exempt from all these comments. Uh, from, from and I saw your tweet about that. And that's why I said that, because I was hoping to tee you up for it, because you sent out a tweet. Oh, yeah. like, I work for a four-letter agency. And I'm like, hey, oh, this family-friendly show. But uh, uh, well, yeah, is. but so, we're going to get into this. So the, the big number one, um, we all can see that the unemployment numbers have been really good. Like the uh, unemployment's quite low. Uh, we still have some long-term unemployed in, uh, in this country. Some folks are simply not gonna come back to the labor force, but in general, you look at the unemployment picture. Um, and if you didn't know anything else that was going on, you think, wow, that's that's actually pretty good unemployment numbers. And that's in the aggregate. Aggregate hides things, but we'll just leave it at that. So let's get into the inflation number that popped. Um, folks reacted, it was 7.5%. That's an annual rate that means from January 2021 to January 2022, prices in the basket that the BLS studies went up 7.5%. Okay, so it's a big number. We see folks on both sides of the political spectrum trying to use this for their particular policy uh, endeavors. It's not really as big a number as you might think because it's very context specific to your family's particular situation. So what I mean by that is the biggest drivers, if you look at of this, of 12, of the last 12 months, the biggest drivers of inflation, the biggest driver has been energy. Energy prices over the last 12 months have gone up by about 27 percentage points. All other goods, we talk in food, you know, other things like that, health, those are averaging about 5%. That is a high number, right? Generally speaking, that, that, that's a pretty high number um, in a normal time. So I don't want to discount it. I don't want to say there's no inflation. I, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we look at this, it, it's largely driven by energy. And digging into the numbers a little bit further, it's gas prices are up 40% year over year. Fuel oil, you know, that's the electricity and and gas and everything that you use in your home. That's up 46 percentage points. Piped gas is up 24 percentage points. Oh, and used cars are up 41 percentage points. So we also know that like home prices are up, that that shelter costs are up a a bit, but your your mileage may vary. But if you own your own house, which 65 percent of Americans do, you're cost of your of your house hasn't really changed in terms of 
your mortgage because your mortgage has stayed the same because nobody's on an adjustable rate mortgage anymore. If you haven't bought a used car in the last year, you really haven't noticed that price. New car prices, by the way, are only are, are, are up 12 percentage points. Again, that is high, um, but you know, that compared to 40% like that, that, that's quite a difference. And then, you know, if you, um, if you happen to be someone like me who hasn't driven very much because you've been teleworking this whole commute, I actually looked at my odometer. My, I bought my car about a year ago. I've got less than 5,000 miles on it. I haven't really noticed what gas prices are. I think they're three something. Yeah, so they're up the point there. is you're, you're going to, you, you know, like what I experience, you know, is not what, what other folks experience, but like the salience of price rises, it's going to hit a particular demographic. And um, those are going to be your renters and your lower incomes and people that are dependent upon driving to work every day, because guess what? They don't have a cushy telework job. Yeah. And the problem is the things you're talking about, used cars, uh, electric prices, the service industry workers, the lower end wage workers, the people that really took a beating the last two years, those are probably, if you take the five or six most expensive things they spend money on other than where they live, it's their car, it's their fuel costs, it's their electric bill. This, this is These are numbers, and we're talking about them as reports, but to certain demographics and the lower down the economic structure you go, the bigger an issue this is. This is some real world impactful stuff that's really, really hitting people hard right now. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at the lower end. And I mean, look, let's, let's be honest. Why is, why are we seeing a lot of energy and focus on this? We're what? Eight months away from a big election again, midterms. So, you know, the pressure's on to bring down the inflation. Now I'm in the camp that I think that we are, we're, if we, if we're looking at the changes, so for instance, the month over month change, which in October was 0.9 percentage points, that's not annualized. That's just a month to month change. In November, it was 0.7. In December, it was 0.6. And January, it's 0.6. That's telling me that sort of we're over the wave of inflation continuing to increase and increase and increase. And so I would expect this wave, if current conditions hold, that's a big if, to, to start cresting down. Now, the Federal Reserve is going to help matters quite a bit. Uh, I'm a little bit more bullish on what the Federal Reserve is going to do uh, come February or March. Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve can raise their rate in between meetings. I'm either anticipating a mid-meeting raise of 25 basis points or a March raise of 50 basis points. But I'm leaning towards they're going to do a mid-meeting raise pretty soon. Now, again, I'm not a monetary policy economist. I'm kind of spitballing here. But um, I think these numbers are enough to tell them. And then I bet they're getting some pressure that they got to start reining in the inflation right now. And, and so the way the Federal Reserve does that is they, they jack their federal funds rate up. Yeah, we're talking to Jericho Hill. All right, but explain that to me like I'm five, because we've been talking about inflation so much, I think people maybe just kind of gloss their eyes over. Or they, they, it's become a buzzword. If the Fed raises interest rates, which everybody thinks they're going to do, it's just a matter of when and how much and how often. A lot of reports say they think maybe three raises over the next year or so is what they're looking at trying to do here. Oh, what I'm that, definitely above that. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's concert. I think they may do three by the end of the summer, but let's not get into that right now. Explain it to me like I'm five, though. What does it mean that they have to raise interest rates to curb in inflation? Because these interest rates we were talking about, fuel prices, gas prices, you start jerking around interest rates, that has a massive effect. And again, it's a proportionate effect the further down the economic structure you go because people with loans 
people with savings accounts. This is going to change a lot of stuff for a lot of people in a hurry if that number starts moving. Sure. So first off, on the number of races, I'm going to quote Big E, and I'm going to say three ain't enough, I need five. And that's a little wrestling reference for everybody. Uh, number two, let's go back to the inflation story real quick. I told, I said the driver, a good bit of this has been fuel prices, gasoline, oil, right? Our ability to influence oil prices is not so great. That That's really a worldwide issue. Like Everybody's dealing with that. Every developed country has skyrocketing inflation right now. Um, and oil is probably one of these classic supply chain issues. Um, what can we do about that? Not much. Well, let's pivot to what can the Fed do, right? Uh, the Fed can raise with its Fed funds rate, which is sort of a rate of, uh, uh, that determines sort of interbank borrowing and stuff like that. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too much, but you know, it has indirect impacts on the economy, but generally what raising that rate does is it tends to slow down economic activity Economic activity being a little bit slower, sort of, I guess, uh, would be, you know, less price rises, less changes going on. So it's sort of like hitting a gas break, hitting, I mean, it's not a gas break, hitting the brakes on the economy. And they're trying to do it in such a way that they're trying to sort of glide in, you know, like, I'm sure you've done this a number of times, the light turns, turns red, and you're not quite at that light yet. And you just sort of like slow down for a little bit instead of just stopping because you hate stopping and wait for the light to turn green. And then you can rev it back up again. Right. So you never actually stop. Um, I think that's what the Fed's going to try to do. That, that's how I would explain what, what goes on when they raise these rates. So if I, I don't, you know, explain it like I'm five level, they're just trying to hit the gas, the hit the brakes just a little bit, slow things down, let things catch up. Yeah. We're talking to Jericho Hill, a little economics today. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more economics, finish off our discussion about the CPI uh report we're going to get into a little bit of affordable housing that was all over the news last few days so we'll talk about that more with jericho hill on her tell right after this uh welcome back to her tell i'm andrew donaldson i'm joined with jericho hill our economist buddy who explains the economic numbers that have been confusing everybody, especially people like me. So thank you, Jericho, for being with us again. All right. Uh, you talked about the CPI report. Everybody was kind of freaking out that seven plus number for inflation. But there was other good economic news. The last job reports number was probably beyond the administration's wildest dreams for a number they could put out on a press release. Very good number. Very good news. Correct? Well, that's an interesting way to, to tee in. He is a good friend of mine, and he has dived into this job market report. And what he actually found is that, yes, on the surface, it looks like a great job report. But underneath uh, what we see is that a lot of the growth that we saw, and when we see we see the job report, we see that Omicron really did a number of jobs for a while because it shut things back down. But a lot of the growth is due to you know, methodological changes, which are not nefarious. It's just, you change a data source, right? Or you, you change over from, from, you know, moving from one year to another, and there's just squirrely things that happen with the data. Actually, I come out thinking that, you know, yeah, it looked like a good jobs report, but it probably, and it probably is a good jobs report. I want to be clear, but it wasn't as good as it looks like because of some of these little quirks and how the data is collected. Um, and how the data gets reported. And there, there's, again, there's nothing nefarious about that. It's just 
you know, everybody's got their cycle. We do this in this month and we do this change in this month. And that's just sort of what happens. I also found when he came out with that report and his Substack's excellent, by the way, go subscribe for it. Um, yeah, seriously, this is a, I, this this is a guy that I'm encouraging to go get a PhD because uh, I'm not a, I'm not somebody that that has a PhD sort of like you got to have that to be a good economist. I'm not somebody that you know professes that you've got you you know everybody with a PhD you know is expert and whatnot. But unfortunately, uh, in the econ world, uh, having a PhD is sort of the gateway in. Um, and yeah. I think he's doing great work, but I want him to be listened to more. Yeah, and, I highly and, recommend and, it. And when and, I read and, and it, I hope he does. Yeah. And when I read it, the thing that jumped out to me was his whole premise. And this is a long post. This is an in-depth post he did on this. He said, and he called it, he said, this is the most complicated job reports we've ever had. And that really speaks to kind of the, you know, this third or fourth time you've been on here and we've talked about it is this is a really complicated economic time where we, we joke about the numbers not making sense and there being contradictory information. But this really is one of the more complicated and interesting economic times we've had in recent memory, isn't it? Yes, that that fake Chinese pro curse proper, but you live in interesting times. So yeah, it's happened here. Look, we have we 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 artificially shut down our economy, and and most countries did artificially shut down their economy for a little while. That's unusual. We then had rapid uh, stimulus activity and did a lot to sort of make sure that folks were okay because we shut down the economy. And that shutdown was going to happen whether the government did it or not. People were going to react, you know, because, hey, pandemic, it's scary, you know. And and now we're coming back and we're seeing, you know, what's happening. And look, people are are moving to a, a much greater degree than we, we, we thought. You know, you've got, again, you've got white collar workers doing remote work and, and choosing to relocate. Just look at what's happened out in Boise with 30% year over year house price increases. That's crazy. Um, we've got... Um, Workers at the uh, upper end of the age spectrum, simply like, I'm not coming back to work. You know, uh, they've they've dropped out. People are changing jobs, uh, especially amongst the the beleaguered retail sector and healthcare sector. Um, sort of sick of how people have been treating them, and because there are um, a, a dearth of, of workers sort of out there. Um, they're seeing their sort of ability to to get concessions and raise their wages to to to, to be really improved. Another thing that's happened is is we basically shut down immigration in this country for two years because of, of the pandemic restrictions. So we haven't had those folks coming in. So that's also decreased our labor supply. Yeah, how do we get, you know? There's a like you said. There's a lot that's changed in these two years, uh, and the amazing thing is. This really wasn't anything that we anticipated. There's going to be a lot of research papers coming out in the next five to 10 years from economists, you know, um, looking at this as um, what we call like a natural experiment. Like normally, like if we want to do an experiment, you know, we have to go into a lab setting or we have to do very complicated math to, to figure out what caused what. You know, in this case, you know, this pandemic, right, we out of our control. It happened. It changed things, you know, and then we could, we'll be studying the reactions to this for a very long time. Yeah. Talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend, he likes to talk about affordable housing though. So, but when the time we got left, I want to ask you about this. Let's just talk about a big picture though, because part of the problem with the affordable housing debate is, um, especially if you're very online, there's, there's just the very wonky policy heavy camp of it. 
And then there's what I call the meme camp of it, where they just take pictures of stuff and go, oh, look at these horrible, evil pictures and look at this picture. And I don't think either one of those are particularly helpful to the overall discussion. I understand it's a complicated policy issue. Is there a better way to discuss this? Because things like affordable housing is a really important issue. But it seems to me, because I'm just a layperson, it seems to me like we don't have a good way to actually discuss this in a way that would bring in people that aren't just into it as a niche figure or that it directly affects. Can we talk about this in a better way, do you think? So one of the ways that I, 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 I try to talk to people um, when I do sort of my advocacy work here in the D.C. Re- region um, is, you know, we talk about that you can build, for instance, this is just an example, but like you can build a duplex that looks like a single family house. And so for folks that are concerned that the dramatic, the appearance of their neighborhood is gonna dramatically change and that's gonna affect their property values. The, the truth is no, you can densify housing uh, without actually changing the fundamental appearance of housing in a neighborhood. The other thing that I, that I, that I you know, sort of talk about is you have folks that get afraid um, and rightly so about how changes because they're again, the change is very local and folks like me come in from 40 miles away to say, oh, it's fine. I think maybe that there's, and some of our community organizations try to do this, uh, a dialogue between those who are going to be most directly affected and sort of what the community at large and what, what the goals and objectives are trying to be and why this makes sense. You know, but I mean, treat the human, treat them as human, you know, like I, I don't, I don't, try to say that NIMBYs are all bad people. I don't think that they are, you know. Um, I think that one, they're responding to the incentives that we have as a society. Um, And, you know, generally also as a society, we're a little bit hesitant to change. Um, And they have concerns. They're concerned about what is density going to do? Is is there gonna be too many cars? You know, and, you know, as an economist that works on this, we have ways to design uh, cities and redesign them such that, you know, that, that concern can be alleviated. We get concerns here in Alexandria about how does increased density um, affect flooding, you know, and how does that affect our stormwater drains? Because Alexandria floods, you know, and that's if you're a property owner in Old Town Alexandria dealing with that flooding issue. Yeah, you'd be concerned about more density creating, you know, more floodable opportunities. But again, there are ways we can design our buildings and design our streets and design our sidewalks that can help mitigate, you know, those effects. And so I think that we get wrapped up a little bit in, you know, this is change is going to, to happen uh, and we might spring it on folks. Whereas if we had a, a process where we, where we, you know, sort of spent more time describing what's going to happen and, and spent more time helping folks understand, like, yes, we understand that you're going to, to, to your fear about flooding issues, but, Here's what we're doing. Here's A, B, and C, and these mitigate any increased flood risk. So your flood risk is not changing. People are going to have to observe that what the policymakers are saying holds, and maybe that engenders a little bit of trust. Yeah, talking to Jericho Hill. This is an unfair question to end on, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm curious and I just want to know the answer to it. Uh, we went through the housing crisis of the late aughts, 08, 09. Uh, that was a predatory lending crisis as much as a housing crisis, but it affected housing, so we call it a housing crisis. Is there just been a paradigm shift when it comes to homes and home ownership 
where it's so much more debt heavy and mortgage heavy than equity heavy? Is that just a paradigm shift? Never, nobody ever stopped and kind of considered. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, like it used to be, um, you, you bought your home, you sold your home. And if you wanted a bigger home, then you sold the home you had and you move up now with the way mortgages are set up and you have much more high risk mortgages and stuff, it's way more debt burdensome. And well, it seems to me with the, once you put things like predatory lending and some of the regulatory stuff and those sorts of things on it, that's a big change in how people try to move up in the world. And it's a lot sure, more okay. pitfall. It has a lot more pitfalls in it than the old way of doing it. I'm not saying you can ever go back to the old way because you can't, but I don't think we ever stopped and considered that that's a big shift in how people do things. So the first thing that I would say is um, one, there's, there's not a lot of predatory lending. And what you're talking about, a classic example from the 0608, is what we call ninja loans. No job, no income, no assets. You know, um, Those kinds of loans, the adjustable rate mortgages, they're not necessarily predatory lending, but they can catch, people's, uh, you know, catch people by surprise with adjustments. Those sorts of features, they're, they're gone from the market. The average credit score of... Uh, of a mortgage uh, borrower in this country is exceedingly high today uh, compared to what it looked like before the before the housing crisis of the knots. Um, we haven't seen rapidly deteriorating credit quality as well. It's just it stayed very high. Uh, in fact, um, in major metropolitan areas, a lot of the homes that are bought and sold uh, don't qualify for a traditional conventional mortgage because their loan amounts too big. They call jumbo loans. We've actually seen these jumbo loans, which used to be riskier mortgages, because these jumbo loans um, have um, other sort of requirements. They're now actually at par or less risky than your standard conventional mortgage. So it's a housing market, you know, where I would say now it's it's it, the the risk of the risk pool is, is pretty minimal for when we look at the borrowers. Um, the biggest risk in the housing market and why some of my you know, housing market colleagues um, you know, describe it as the most unhealthiest housing market that we've seen in a long time is um, generally speaking, inventory, which is the number of homes on the market is about four months. And that's a sign of a good market. You have enough homes on the market so people can make good decisions and good choices and, and match appropriately, but homes don't really you know, come off the market the next day. Homes are coming off the market the next day. Inventory is down to below two months uh, across the U.S. That's that's not healthy. Now, to get back at your point about what we're doing with, with equities and, and, and whatnot, I still think it's there for folks to build equity in, in homes and then try and then sell and then move up to the next home. One of the things that changed, Andrew, after the Great Recession, and you did sort of highlight this, is that we went from having a surplus of homes being built to demand for homes needing to be built to having a dearth. So we, we basically were not creating housing supply to keep pace with demand after the 2008 crisis. So that means, you know, functionally that folks can't move into their next home. Folks can't use the equity from their home to buy up and buy a bigger house or move further out or do whatever it is because those there's not enough homes out there. There's not enough entry-level homes being built for folks to go from renting to owning. 
in some respects. So I think that's a big challenge for the housing market going forward. And unfortunately, that's a challenge that one is a local solution, not a national solution, because it requires local zoning laws to change. And it requires the construction industry to be able to build homes. And, and it, does not, it, 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 it does not take a short period of time to build a home. It takes a very long time. It takes a year, two years for the whole permitting process all the way through. Yeah, and we use uh, people don't realize one of the reasons they use homes for an economic indicator is I forget to know it's something like 25, 26 different trades have to go into building one home. There's so much other stuff that goes into building a home. That's why they use it as an indicator. Uh, Jericho it's Hill, a very is, good point. Yeah, Jericho Hill, this is why we talk to you because we always run out of time compared to the amount of material to get through. That's why we keep bringing you back and we will have you again. Let folks know where they can find you on the Twitter and where you've been writing and what you've been doing so that they can follow you between your appearances here on Hurtel. Well, you can find me as Moto Economist on Twitter. I have a substack called Quiglian, um, which is just, you have the address is jerichohill.substack.com. That I do once a month. I post up some housing stats. I pull it from Zillow, from Redfin, from Mortgage Bankers Association. Um, it's just kind of letting people know at a quick glance, if you're not a housing economist, where we're going and what, and what the findings are. Um, and I guess over the next month, what am I going to be doing? A whole lot of sitting here at home. <laughs> uh, you do it so well. And maybe I, maybe I should say, go Joe Burrow. Uh, see. I'm pulling for you. It was bad enough we had Swift on the other day, who's Captain Ohio everything, and he's a Browns fan, and even he was all about the Bengals. All it's a, it, I told him the same. It's it's a hard team not to like. Like just everything about them, they play fast, they play joyfully. I think the Rams are probably going to beat them because they're just a vast. The the Rams' strong suit is their defensive line, and the <laughs> Bengals' weakness is their offensive line. That usually doesn't bode well for a football team, but we'll see what happens. Burrow's fantastic, but it's a hard team not to like. I'm with you. So anyway, yeah, uh, I mean, they've just had such a long time from them not being in the Super Bowl that, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited to see them, you know, getting the shot. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the last time they were, uh, barely. <laughs> Jericho Hill, thank you for the time today, buddy. I appreciate your time, my friend. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.